The scripture reading this morning is 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, and I'm reading from the New International Version. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his, will, obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Shall we go to our Father in prayer? Our most gracious, holy, loving, kind Heavenly Father, what a privilege, Father, we have of coming before thy throne of grace and mercy to be able to humbly address you as our Father, knowing, Father, that we can bring all of our cares, our worries, concerns to your throne and you're listening, as well, Father, is bringing thanksgiving and glory and praise to your honor. Father, we're so thankful for this congregation of your children, that as we do our daily lives, that we try to keep Christ focused as our goal. And we try to do things, Father, that will glorify you and your kingdom. And we try to do things, Father, through the name of Christ, that we can influence others to open their eyes and see the glory and the love that you have. Help us, Father, to always concentrate on what is doing right, what is doing good, what is truthful, and above all, Father, letting this world know about Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Father, within our congregation, we've got several that are, are sick. And I, I want to take this opportunity, Father, to lift their names up before you, Father, so that you can bless them. Father, we pray for Harriet, Harriet Sue Hall. Knowing, Father, that she's been in, in a tremendous amount of pain and discomfort, we ask your peace. We ask your healing, Father, but please give her the comfort that she now is in need of so badly. Help our brother Ken Castleman as he's recovering from a series of unfortunate things that's happened to him in sickness and falls, and, and please restore him to his health. Our sister Faye Wilson has been having a tough time 
Lately, Father, we ask your mercy and your blessings upon Faye. Help her to be able to feel your healing hand laid upon her. And help our brother Ken Mabry in recovering from his surgery, Father. And may the discomfort that he's going through be short-lived and, and he'll be back with us soon. Father, there's more that I'm sure that I am not remembering at the present time, but Father, being all-knowing and mighty and gracious as you are, you know their needs. Help them, Father, in the way that will glorify you and help them to understand you are our God. And most of all, Father, we're thankful for Jesus Christ. Because without Christ, Father, we would have no hope. We would be doomed to a devil's hell instantly because of our multitude of sins. But through your mercy and grace and pardon and your love for us that you sent Jesus Christ to die in our place, that his death, the shedding of his blood, is what can get us whole again and clean in your sight because you cannot tolerate sin, Father, and sin continually separates us from you. But through the blood of Jesus, those sins were washed away as we come in contact with it in baptism. And helping us, Father, to walk in the ways that you would have us to walk, do the things you would have us to do, say the things that we need to have said, all to glorify you. Thank you so much again, Father, for Jesus. And in his holy name we pray. Amen. Colin, if you would, go ahead and uh, skip to number 449. Uh, before Andy brings us the lesson, we're going to sing uh, the first two verses of number 449, None of Self and All of Thee. I hope, I hope we all know it. I've only led this song maybe uh, two or three times in my life. I, I've heard it led few times. It's an outstanding song. And this morning, our hope is that uh, as we sing these first two verses, Andy brings the lesson, and then we sing the, the second uh, two verses for the invitation song, which if you want to mark, you can. Um, uh, it speaks a powerful message. Let's stand, please. We're going to sing verses one and two of none of self and all of thee. If you don't know it, then um, sing out the best you can. <clears throat> oh, the bitter pain and sorrow that a time could ever be when I proudly said to Jesus, all of self and none of thee, all of self and none of thee, all of self and none of thee, when I proudly said to Jesus, all of self and none of thee. 
Yet he found me, I beheld him Blading on the cursed tree And my wistful heart said faintly Some of self and some of thee some of self and some of thee, some of self and some of thee, and my wistful heart said faintly, some of self and some of thee. Please be seated. Good morning, Jay family. Glad to see you this morning. Glad that we can be back together uh, to worship God again on the first day of the week. If you're visiting with us, thank you so much. Thank you for being here with us. We hope that uh, you have been greeted already and that you know that people here love and care about you, even if this is our very first time meeting you. Uh, if you haven't been greeted that way yet, give us a little bit more time right after services. We'd love to get to know you a little bit better. If I haven't had a chance personally to meet you, I would certainly love to do that and know that many of our members would as well. It is good. It is good for us to be here together this morning to worship God. It's always good to worship God, and it's always good to be together as the family here at Jefferson Avenue, and I'm glad that we can be here together. Just last week, I heard a story uh, from a minister in uh, North Carolina, and he, uh, he knew a uh, missionary in Haiti. Uh, and this, uh, this story that I'm going to share with you part now and part of the end of the lesson uh, is, is so unbelievable, you'd be tempted like me to think, there's no way that really happened, but apparently this is a true story. This missionary who was in Haiti had a member of the congregation that he was working at who was uh, looking to buy a house, and they found a house there in Haiti, and the gentleman who was selling it uh, was, was happy to sell it to him, but he had a, a clause in the contract. Now, some of us here have uh, certainly bought and sold homes before. We've got some realtors in the house, so we know that uh, there are clauses, there are conditions, there are things that are sometimes a little odd this way or that way, but this one was certainly odd. Uh, the, the seller of the house said, I'll, I'll sell you my house, but I'm not going to sell you the, the nail that is in the, the mantle above the front door. Uh, and we're going to put that in the clause. It'll be a, a nail clause. Let's call it that for, uh, for just the, the ease of calling it something. I, you, you'll own the entire house, but I will own the nail that is in the post or the, the top of the, the front door. And you can't remove that. Uh, we, we're going to leave that right there. Again, I, there, there are some odd clauses perhaps in selling some houses and that sort of thing. But I've never heard one quite that odd. A few years later, the, the gentleman who sold the house to the, uh, one of our brothers in Christ came back and wanted to buy the house back, uh, but didn't want to buy it for what it was worth. He wanted to buy it for about the same price that he, he sold it as. And of course, our brother in Christ said, well, I don't want to sell it to you for that. I, this is our home now. We, we don't want to sell the house at all, and I'm certainly not going to sell it to you for, for less than it's worth. And then the man who wanted to buy the house, the original owner of the, the, the house in our story, said, well, you remember that I own that nail in the house. And if you don't sell me this house back, you're not going to like the results. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11, Paul there, after listing a, a long list of, of sins, says to the Corinthian church, those Christians there, such were some of you. 
but you were washed, but you were justified, but you were sanctified. This morning we're starting a series that will last for however long the Lord wills, but I'm planning on it being uh, for the rest of this year on the idea of us being sanctified. Sanctified is where we are and it is where we are going. And this morning I want us to look at just really those, those three kind of church words that we think about in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11. We'll look at them in this way. What does it mean when Paul says to those, those Christians in Corinth that he would, could also say to us today, what does it mean that you were washed? Then we'll look at what does it mean that you were justified and finally as we think about and we'll build upon it in the weeks coming forward if it be the Lord's will, what does it mean that we are sanctified the first one's really pretty simple but you were washed you have all of these sins you know this sin and, and the, the verses that are right before this in first corinthians chapter six uh and he, he wraps up or he he culminates that list with the idea those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of god and christians he was said to them at that point and we could say it to ourselves today and such were some of you can you think about your life before you became a christian even if you grew up going to church, can you think about the sins that you delved into, that you were a part of, that you allowed to be a part of who you are? Such were some of us, but we were washed. That one's really most simple of the three words that we're going to talk about this morning. It, it clearly, if we look at the rest of the tenor of the, the New Testament especially, it clearly must relate to the idea of baptism the word there in the original language simply means to, to to wipe away to make clean or to wash away and i think the, the clearest connection that we can make is in acts chapter 22 and verse 16 where saul there is told after his uh, experience with jesus on the road to damascus and his his conversion of it now certainly he once he was a persecutor of of christ in his church and now he wants to be a follower of christ the prophet there tells him, now get up, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized, washing away your sins and calling on his name. Baptism, washing away sins, calling on his name. Something that a large majority of us probably here this morning have done. And certainly those in Corinth, those Christians in Corinth, they had been washed. It was the idea not of, of a, like Peter tells us, it's not a removal of dirt from the flesh, but it's an appeal to God for a clean conscience. In Romans chapter 10, it's a calling upon the name of the Lord so that we can be saved. It is a being baptized into Christ for the remission of our sins. In Christ where all spiritual blessings are. In Christ where there's no separation and no condemnation. The importance of being washed, being cleaned, having our old self done away with so that we can become New. So the idea of being washed, I think, is something that most of us here this morning, perhaps not all of us, but most of us here this morning are fairly familiar with. If you're not and you want to talk more about that, I'd love to talk to you about that. But what about justified? You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. What does it mean that we're justified as Christians? Well, it means, that, again, the original word there means to render, to declare, or to pronounce one just, righteous, or to be made right. You probably have heard the idea of the word justified being meaning just as if I had never sinned. And that's a, that's a catchy phrase to, to kind of understand it. And it's true and there's nothing wrong with that. But I want us to really think about what does it mean that we are justified? If you have your Bibles this morning, I hope you do, turn to Romans chapter 3. This will be the passage we'll spend the most time on this morning. Romans chapter 3. 
verses 21 through 28. Romans 3, 21 through 28. If you don't have a copy of God's word, there's some black Bibles in the back of the pew in front of you. And Romans chapter 3, verse 21 starts on page 941. 941 of those black Bibles in front of you. Romans chapter 3. Let's read verses 21 through 28 and, and realize and understand what does it mean when, when Paul tells those Corinthian Christians, when God declares to us that as Christians we have been justified, what does that mean? Verse 21 of Romans chapter 3. But now apart from the law, okay, well let's stop there and explain some things. The law being the Old Testament, the law especially being those first five books of the Old Testament, the law being those, those rules and those regulations, most of them certainly given by God, many of them built upon not just by God or not solely given by God, but built upon by the, the, the elders and the, the rulers of the, of the Jews. Now, apart from the law, so not in connection with the law, but apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been shown. It has come to be being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Okay, so, so an interesting kind of juxtaposition there. This righteousness of God is apart from the law, but it is witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets is a phrase that we use in the the New Testament, meaning the entirety of the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi. When you read the law and the prophets, they would have understood that to mean the entire Old Testament as we think about it today. They would not have thought about it as the Old Testament. They would have just thought about it as their Bible because that was their Bible. But the law and the prophets would be everything that we read from Genesis to Malachi and what we call today the Old Testament. So this, this, this righteousness of God being made right, uh, God's rightness, his holiness, his, his righteousness is apart from the law, but it's witnessed by the law and the prophets. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction So this righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ, and it says, for all who believe, there's no distinction, not only no distinction for anyone who believes, but then it goes to that verse that many of us know, Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, this would have been important in the first century, especially to those those original readers in Rome who were reading this, because while some of them may have been Jewish, many of them were not Jewish. They were Gentiles. And the point that he's making here is there's, there's no distinction. There, there's an equal amount of need in this righteousness that is found apart from the law, witnessed by the law and prophets, but this righteousness is in Christ Jesus for anyone who believes, not just the Jews, not only the Gentiles, but for anyone because we all need it desperately, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That was true in the first century, and that's true today. That's true for me, and it's true for you. There is no distinction. You're not a worse person than I am in God's eyes, and you're not a better person than I am in God's eyes. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and our only hope is through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's continue. Verse 24. Being justified, there's our word, being justified as a gift by his grace, God's grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. In verse 25, who God displayed, this this whom, uh, talking about Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith for a demonstration of his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. There's a lot of information in there, isn't it? There's, there's a few things whom God publicly displayed as a propitiation. Okay, well, there's one of those 
$5 church words uh, that you certainly probably haven't said when you went to the grocery store and you were buying something uh, from the, the clerk there. You probably didn't say uh, propitiation at any point during that conversation. Or the last time you talked to your mother or your grandmother or your grandchild or uh, a business person. That's just, that, that's a church word that we don't even use in the church very much, right? Propitiation. We don't, we don't use that word very much. What does that mean? And, and the reality is, even the New Testament doesn't use that word very much. We don't read that word a whole lot. In 1 John, it's mentioned a couple times. Uh, in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2, chapter 4 and verse 10. And it's also mentioned a few other places. But let's understand what it means. Which God, whom God, God displayed Jesus publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Okay, well, it's interesting. It's really, I I didn't know this until I studied for this lesson. It's really interesting. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. Well, when did God do that? When did God display Jesus publicly in his blood? On the cross, right? That's when he did it. It was was an extremely public display. That that was the reason, as a matter of fact, that people were were, were crucified publicly was as a deterrent for people who would be, people who would break the law, right? Remember, it wasn't just Jesus, the, the one who was breaking the, their, their spiritual law and claiming to be God, and they, they uh, d- d- pronounced blasphemy upon him. Who was buried beside him, right? A thief. Just a thief. Someone who stole something. We don't know how much he stole. We don't know if it was a, you know, a major bank heist or somebody who just took, some, took an apple off a cart. We don't know what it is, but, but a thief is, is there, and he's displayed publicly to say to everybody else, hey, look at this guy. You don't want to be this guy. And God displays Jesus publicly as a propitiation. Now, like I said, the word propitiation is not used very much in the New Testament at all. It's one of those words, it's, it's a church word. We certainly, again, I've never used that word outside these walls, probably outside the walls of a church. You probably haven't either. We don't say it very much here. But the idea of what a propitiation is, is an atoning sacrifice. An atoning sacrifice, meaning I have done something wrong and I need to fix it. And this sacrifice is what will allow the person that I've wronged to forgive me. Spiritually, what is that? God, I have sinned against him. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I do, I do not know, I no longer measure up to God's standard. He is perfect. He is perfection. He is complete. And I'm not. And I've sinned against him. And I need to fix that somehow. But the problem is, I can't fix it. There's nothing I can do because it's apart from the law. I can never do enough acts of the law to make my sin right. But Jesus, being that perfect Lamb of God, is able to be our atoning sacrifice, our propitiation. And the interesting part is in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 5. You can turn that or write that, write that down if you want. But the, the specific way that the, the Greek word is used here in propitiation, and I'm not going to get too deep. Hold on with me. It's okay. But the, the specific way this word is used, the only other time in the New Testament it is used this way, and is in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 5, and there it's not translated as propitiation. It's translated as mercy seat. And they're talking about the Ark of the Covenant of the Old Testament. They're talking about the Ark of the Covenant of the Jews that would have sat inside the tabernacle and later the temple. It would have sat inside not the the outer courts of the temple, not the inner courts of the temple, not the holy place of the temple, but in the Holy of Holies. The one place that the only thing that was in it was the Ark of the Covenant. 
The one place that only one day a year, one person could enter into the holy place. And the Ark of the Covenant was, was this golden box in a very simplistic way that had some angels on it that faced one another and it had rings on it so that it could be carried by poles. And upon it was the, the mercy seat. And the picture is that when, uh, when they first had it, uh, that the presence of God would dwell upon the mercy seat. Well, it's, it's weird to me, it was weird to me as I was studying, that in, in what we read about in Romans chapter 3, when he says he's the propitiation, he's the atoning sacrifice, the only other time that it's used in the Bible that way is to translate it when it means the mercy seat, the place where the presence of God would dwell upon the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, that only one person, one day a year could go. You know what day that was? The day of atonement where the sacrifice of the Old Testament, the sacrifice of the, the lambs, the sacrifice, the, the atoning sacrifice would be taken and it would be sprinkled on the mercy seat. And the idea in the Old Testament was that when this atoning sacrifice was made, the people were recognizing this one day a year, they were recognizing, okay, God, I've got sin in my life. I know that I've got sin in my life and there's nothing that I can do to fix it. So I'm making this sacrifice to you. And the reason that I, I put my hope in this sacrifice is because you told me this is what I've got to do. And when they, when they went in, when the, the high priest the one guy who could go into the Holy of Holies the one day a year and sprinkle that blood. The idea was not only will you forgive me of my sins, God. The idea was also I give you my life. You take away my sins in this sacrifice and I give you my life in this sacrifice. Jesus was publicly displayed to be the propitiation for my sin. And when I'm a Christian and I'm washed by the blood of Jesus and I'm justified, I'm declared by God, not by any human court or any human power, but declared by God Almighty to be just, to be righteous, then I'm saying to God, yes, I need that forgiveness from you and God, I'm giving you my life. I've been justified. Verse 26. For the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time. So God gave this, God gave Jesus to be the publicly displayed as the propitiation in his blood for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time. Notice what he does here. So that he, God, would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. I want you to see what God did there, okay? I want you to understand what God did there. It's, it's extremely important for your faith. Okay, God is just, he is righteous, he must do the right thing because that is who he is. What that means is when someone breaks his law, he must punish. When someone breaks the law, they must be punished. Now that may or may not work in our justice system today in America, but that does absolutely work in the justice system of God. When we sin... When we break God's law, not the Old Testament law, but simply God's law of right and wrong, we must be held accountable. So he is just, but he also loves his creation. He loves you. He wants you to be in a right relationship with him. So I imagine, and I don't know, and maybe God is far beyond my thoughts, certainly, but if I were in his situation and if I had the same ideas that he had, I'm just, I must punish wrong, but I'm also love my creation. How can I 
fix this? What can I do to do this? They can't do anything to fix this. I'm the only one who can fix this. How can I fix this? Well, I'll have to die for them. And when he did that, he became not only just, which he has always been, but he became the justifier, the one who can declare to you that you are righteous, that you are justified because of Jesus. And if that's not good news, I don't know what is. You can do nothing about your spiritual failures, but God has done everything to fix your spiritual failures. And all he's asked you to do is to have faith in Jesus Christ. Now that faith leads to actions, to following, but the the salvation, the justification comes through faith. Verse 27, then Paul asked a question to the Romans. He would ask a question to us today. Where then is boasting? Well, it's excluded. By what kind of law? A law of works? No, but by a law of faith. And then Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, says this, so we should probably listen. Verse 28 of Romans chapter 3. For we maintain that a man, that a person, is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Again, there are, is no amount of laws that you can follow, things that you can do, lists that you can accomplish that will make you justified. Justification, being declared righteous, being declared correct in the eyes of God only comes through God's plan and through our faith in Jesus Christ. Justified. You, if you're a Christian this morning, you're justified. You are, in God's eyes, righteous. Praise God for that. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect, but you're righteous. And then we come to this idea that's similar, but maybe more or certainly a different angle, we're also sanctified. This idea of sanctified means, uh, again, it's where I am and where I'm going. And there's maybe the difference. We're washed and we're justified. And I would say those those two happen simultaneously, the same time. When I, when I commit myself to being a follower of Jesus and I'm baptized, dying to myself and reenacting the gospel of Christ, right? That's what we say and that's what Romans ch- chapter 6 teaches, that I die to myself, I'm buried with him in, in baptism and I raise to walk in newness of life. I, I die to myself. It's not just this idea I want my sins to be forgiven, but I've chosen to be a follower of Jesus, meaning it's not about me anymore, it's about Jesus now. I die to myself and I rise up to walk in newness of life. Those old sins have been washed away. I've been washed and I've been justified in that moment in that instance through the through the blood of Jesus Christ God declares me just righteous right with him and then we're also sanctified what does the word sanctified mean it's where I am because it means that God has rendered or God has made me hallowed and there's another word we don't use very much hallowed the word we use more often for that is holy God has made you holy. This morning, if you are a Christian, brother and sister, you are holy. Now, that doesn't mean you're holier than thou. It doesn't mean you're better than anyone else. We need to understand, what does it mean that I am holy? It means that I've separated myself from profane things or worldly things, and I've dedicated it to God. It means, and here's a powerful thing, Christian, have you ever dealt with guilt? 
Christian, do you still deal with guilt? Can you think about non-Christian this morning? If you're here and you're not a Christian, are you guilty? Do you feel guilt about the sins that you committed? The things that you know that are wrong, that you've done them anyway? God says when we're sanctified, we're set apart, we're made holy, we're hallowed, and we can be purified. And in our purification, we can be free from guilt. I believe this would be what what the psalmist is saying. In Psalm 23, when he says, he renews my soul. Your soul, the burden upon your soul can be, can be lifted through this idea of being sanctified. It's very similar in one way to the idea of being justified. You're justified. You're made right. You're, God says you are this way. And God says that you are sanctified. God has, God has taken you as a Christian. Perhaps even whether you've understood this completely or not when you became a Christian, God has taken you out of the world and has set you apart, has made you holy for his purposes. Peter said it this way, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that area. He says that we are a chosen race, Christians. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Christians, church, that is our job. We think about it and we consider and, and certainly J.A. recently over the, over the last year we've, we've, we've verbalized it this way that we want to be, we want to be disciples, we want to make disciples and the way that we do that is we love God and we love others. And that's what we want to do and that's definitely what we want to be about. But Peter says, You, Christians, we collectively, we're a chosen race. Not better than anybody else, but people who have chosen to identify with God and God has identified as his people. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who God looks down and says, that those are my people. Do you want God to say that about you? I want God to say that about me. That's my child. That's my son. That's my daughter. Those are my people. And we're sanctified. So God says that about us. But why? So that we might proclaim the excellencies of God because he's called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He has taken us out of darkness and put us in a better place, a place where we serve and follow and worship him. Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. If, if Peter says it in 1 Peter 2, 9 as the, as the we, uh, Paul says it this way as the me. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet, not I, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. If I were to put that in far shorter, simpler words, my life is no longer about I've been sanctified. I've been set apart. So I want you to understand, especially as we go throughout this series, but I want you to understand that you've been washed as a Christian. Your old sins, God remembers them no more. It's either in Psalms or Proverbs. I'm not sure which, which one it's at. You read both of them, you'll find it. Uh, God, it says that, that God cast our sins as far away as the east is from the west. I love that idea. I love that idea. I love the, the reality of it, and I love the, the imagery of it. You know, in reality, if, if you walk north, eventually you'll walk south, right? You'll get to the North Pole, and you'll start walking south. But if you walk east, you'll never walk west. 
You might get to where we uh, think of as the Western world or the Eastern world, but you'll, if you walk east, you'll never walk west. If you walk west, you'll never walk east. God has cast your sin as far as the east is from the west. He remembers it no more. Christian, you have been washed. Yes, you probably, like I do, hold on to those memories and that guilt and that difficulty of past sin, but God says, let go of that. You've been washed. You've been justified. No, you are not worthy. No, you are not good enough. But God has deemed you righteous, justified, right in his eyes. And God has made you sanctified. He has set you apart from the rest of the world. That is where you are, but it's also where you're going. It's where God wants you to be. Jesus says it this way in Luke chapter 10 and verse 27. When answering the question, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God, your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. This morning, you're washed. If you're, if you're a Christian, you're justified. You're sanctified. It is where you are. But the question is this morning, what areas of your life, what areas of my life, do I find hard dedicating to God? Because I am sanctified. That's where I'm at. But it's also where I'm going because I want to be more like Jesus. In the coming weeks, we'll talk about things like I'm sanctified in my money. I'm sanctified in my sexual relationships. I'm sanctified in the way that I use truth versus lies. I'm sanctified in every aspect of my life. That man who sold the house in Haiti told the man, hey, if you don't sell me this house back, you're going to regret it because you remember I owned that nail. And the brother in Christ said, well, I'm not going to sell you the house back. You're not, you're not offering me what it's worth, and, and this is our home now. I'm not going to sell you this house back. And yes, it, it sounds strange, and this is the part that just sounds that there's no way that would ever work. Well, let's remember he's not in our country, and things may not work exactly the same way, and I was, I was told this is a true story. The man who owned the nail, because of the nail claws in selling the house, brought a dead dark carcass and hung it on that nail. And you can just imagine the stench. And I would certainly have imagined that the owner of the house removed it. And, and I don't know why or how or what twisted sense of law they had there that allowed that that dog somehow stayed there and you can imagine the the stench of the decay of this animal that's hanging in their front door that eventually the story goes at least that the family who lived there with their children and their spouse had to leave the house and the person who owned the nail just came and took it back over in first john chapter one let's read verses five through chapter 2 and verse 6. And this is the message we have heard from God and declare to you, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we Christians say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him, God, Jesus, a liar 
and his word is not in us. Then John says to these Christians that he loves, God says to his children that he loves, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you might not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and yet does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him, the love of God has been completed or perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Christian, you've been washed. You've been justified. You've been sanctified. But what area of your life do you struggle dedicating to God? What area of your life do you struggle setting aside and being sanctified in that area of your life? What difficulties do you struggle with? And I I don't say this to say, you're the only one who does that. I say this to say, we all have those areas. And my area may be different than your area, but I've got some areas. And so do you. And we don't need to be afraid to admit that we do. As a matter of fact, it will only be better for us if we'll own up to the fact that we desperately need Jesus. How are we justified? Not by works. The things that you're good at in your Christian life, those things won't save you. Your recognition that you have a desperate need of Jesus and your willingness to follow him the best of your ability in every aspect of your life through his grace will save you. This morning, And certainly we'll talk about more specifics going forward. But this morning, do you have areas in your life that you struggle dedicating to God? And you know what those are. I I hope, if nothing else, this morning that you will take the time today to identify what those areas are. It probably won't take you very long. You probably already know. And start praying to God for help about those things. This morning, if you're here and you're a Christian and you've got some areas that you have really not dedicated to God at all, We want you to know the family here at Jefferson Avenue is here for you. and We want to help you. And and I'm not going to judge you because while I may not struggle with what you struggle with, I struggle with some things. So I can't judge you. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. I, I can't boast about anything because I have the same desperate need of God and Jesus that you do. And I would ask you to pray for me. And if you need folks to pray for you, We're going to stand here in just a second. Andy's going to lead us in a song. And you'll have the opportunity to come forward and let us know that. And we'll have one of our shepherds pray for you right now. And as as detailed as you want to get, we'll help you in as detailed a way as we can. But this morning, if you're not a Christian, I posted on Facebook this week uh, or last week talking about uh, the the idea of, I hope that, I hope we have some people from the community who will come uh, to this, to, to this series for this reason, to see just how far we Christians have to go. Because we've got a long way to go. But I also hope that they will realize and recognize 
the idea that they can be set free from their guilt, that they can be set free from their sin. If you're not a Christian this morning, Jesus died so that you could have a right relationship with him. He's the only hope of you having a right relationship with God. And if you want to know more about that, if you want to study more about that, if you're ready to put Christ on in baptism this morning, we would love to help you become a follower of Jesus. If you have any needs this morning, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.